welcome to this very special episode of No Really I'm Fine. Following on from Series 1, we're visiting another place which shines a light on pioneering work to innovate mental health action across the UK. For this episode, we've come essentially back to the beginning. We've come not only to the oldest mental health institute in the UK, but a place that is known across the world for something more groundbreaking. The retreat in Yorkshire has been helping people with a variety of mental health conditions for more than 225 years. It pioneered the early workings of moral treatment for its patients in a time when mental health sufferers were branded as lunatics or insane. We'll be meeting those who work at the retreat now and people who have benefited directly from the services at the centre. We'll also be getting more of an understanding about the history of the building and the Tuke family which founded the retreat in 1796 and how it has retained the essence of the original principles of moral treatment for more than 200 years. I remember kind of getting out of the car and my dad was here as well um, and just being so nervous because really a lot rode on this, you know, I wanted to get on with my life and um, I wanted to um, get the help and, you know, I was nervous because I'd been actually sent away by um, another service because... um, because I'd been in hospital, my weight was stable again and actually, you know, I was then put lower down on the waiting list and I was so worried that I'd be told the same thing um, because actually it wasn't about weight and I was struggling, like, mentally. Um, so I came to this door where we are now. You ring the bell. And this is where you started to do your therapy here? It is, yeah. So um, I had my assessment in this building and then... Uh, I, you know, getting the letter. Um, Come in. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, getting the letter and being told that I can actually, you know, receive therapy was really helpful. So kind of come round here, go to the reception, and then round here to the waiting room. This is the voice of Roseanne Evans. She was a patient for more than two years at the retreat for anorexia nervosa and autism. She now works at the centre as an expert by experience and shares her own stories with people going through similar struggles as she has. Here, she's retelling the first moment she arrived at the retreat in 2016. Um, Yeah, so I remember coming into this waiting room, um, sitting on that very chair there, (laughs) right in front of us, and um, I was quite nervous, but there was someone else. I remember my dad was really worried as well. because obviously me moving to university when I still wasn't very well was difficult for him to let me go. Um, But there was another woman here and her daughter was in therapy at the time and when I went to my assessment, the woman sat and chatted to my dad and just explained, you know, that um, her daughter had been here for a while but was doing really well because of the retreat's help and that really relaxed my dad as well. Um, So, yes, I'd kind of come in here every week to receive therapy um, and to just to talk through things. Um, So, yeah, this is... You know, obviously I had help previously, but this is where I really felt like I made a change for the better. (laughs) You'll hear more of Roseanne's truly inspiring story later. 
But now you'll hear an extract from a book called The Description of the Retreat, an Institute Near York, written in 1813. It describes how a man, tied up in a straitjacket, was released from his chains at the front door of the retreat. He went on to make a full recovery thanks to the moral principles of the centre, principles that haven't changed to this day. Some years ago, a man, about 34 years of age, of almost Herculean size and figure, was brought to the house. He had been afflicted several times before, and so constantly, during the present attack, had he been kept chained, that his clothes were contrived to be taken off and put on by means of strings, without removing his manacles. They were, however, taken off when he entered the retreat, and he was ushered into the apartment, where the superintendents were supping, He was calm, his attention appeared to be arrested by his new situation. He was desired to join in the repast, during which he behaved with tolerable propriety. After it was concluded, the superintendent conducted him to his apartment and told him the circumstances on which his treatment would depend, that it was his anxious wish to make every inhabitant in the house as comfortable as possible and that he sincerely hoped the patient's conduct would render it unnecessary for him to have a recourse to coercion. The maniac was sensible of the kindness of his treatment. He promised to restrain himself and he so completely succeeded that during his stay no coercive means were ever employed towards him. This case affords a striking example of the efficacy of mild treatment. The patient was frequently very vociferous and threatened his attendants, who in their defence were very desirous of restraining him by the jacket. The superintendent on these occasions went to his apartment and though the first sight of him seemed rather to increase the patient's irritation, yet after sitting some time quietly beside him, the violent excitement subsided and he would listen with attention to the persuasions and arguments of his friendly visitor. After such conversations, the patient was generally better for some days or a week and in about four months he was discharged, perfectly recovered. Can it be doubted? that in this case the disease had been greatly exacerbated by the mode of management, or that the subsequent kind treatment had a great tendency to promote his recovery. Hi, my name's uh, Mike Wash. I'm a trustee of the retreat. I've been for a trustee for now over seven years. Well, well, for me, it's a passage whereby you, you, you have somebody with a history of violence to the extent that he was actually presented in chains and manacles, to the extent that those chains uh, were all continuously left off to, after, off, on him and the only way he could have dressed was actually to thread the, 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 his, his clothes through the tra- chains. So he'd been permanently for years in chains. And as soon as he was presented to the house, he became part of the family and his chains were taken off, and he was washed, he was given clothes, he was sat down, he was able to actually have a meal with the staff and other residents. He was given his own home, his own place, his own space, and lo and behold, his total demeanour and his total behaviour changed. 
So uh, that that really sort of uh, sums it up for me in terms of, you know, sometimes we get the behaviour we deserve, sometimes it requires a little bit of kindness to enable individuals to begin to rediscover themselves. And kindness is a, a real sort of value uh, of ours in the way we actually treat and welcome people here. Actually, my first association with the retreat goes back many years as I, my first profession was a psychiatric nurse. And I spent a day as part of an introduction here in 1972. So it's quite a, quite a, a coincidence and a, quite a turnaround to, to be here as a trustee and then many, many years ago. The reason I was uh, here uh, as a, on an introduction day was because nobody could talk about the history of mental health without mentioning the retreat, because the retreat was the first hospital uh, in the world to be based on uh, moral treatment, humane grounds, and still stands today in the uh, archives of psychiatric history as the most important sort of um, statement of how to care for each other in a humane and moral way. I guess why I became a trustee was partly because of my association with the hospital, but also because uh, the trustees today are all Quakers. And uh, the uh, retreat was founded on Quaker principles uh, by uh, William Duke. Um, and uh, from there, the uh, principles of living peacefully, treating each other as equal uh, in a, a humane, caring way uh, with truth and integrity and the belief that there is a, that of God in everybody was a part of the philosophy of care. And uh, it had a dramatic effect on people who were presented to the hospital um, in those days. You mentioned there about the, the Quaker values being so important to what is done here at the tree. What, tell us a little bit more about that for, for those who may not understand the, the Quaker religion beliefs. We, we are, we are uh, members of the Religious Society of Friends, or we're called Friends, um, and it was set up by George Fox in the 1600s. Uh, and essentially he was saying uh, he did not want to be, he did want to advocate things like hierarchy, uh, sacrament, um, and, and, and really believed that there is that of God in everybody and wanted to actually encourage people to have a personal experience of God. So, um, so, so those sort of that sort of philosophy um, it sort of uh, uh, is is part of being a Quaker, but also living out the values. And so we we as Quakers did do everything we can to ensure that the environment within the uh, the, the hospital environment that and, and and now the outpatient environment is one of total respect, dealing with people as a whole person, um, not labelling individuals uh, in, 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 in a particular way that takes away their humanity. Uh, and those principles were good 225 years ago, and they're still good now. It, it really is interesting that, because they were living these, these values at a time where people with mental health conditions were being classed as lunatics in, in public records and things like that. So, you know... Well, how, well you're so, right. It was out of a disaster. It was out of a tragedy that this, the retreat was found. Hannah Mills was a patient, actually, at the York Asylum, which, which, which is now called Bootham, and it is also closed. But the York Asylum was notorious in terms of how it treated people. They t- treated people worse than they would treat animals. And Hannah Mills was admitted as, as a Quaker there, and friends were refused to, to see her. And two weeks later, she died, and there was an inquiry. And as a consequence of that inquiry, and seeing the dreadful sort of uh, state of affairs at the hospital,
hospital, William Tube took it upon himself to appeal to all Quakers throughout throughout the UK to start setting up a fund to build a hospital um, based on Quaker principles. And as as we'll see, we go we go walk around the grounds. That hospital still exists. It's not a hospital now, uh, apart from one or two units, which um, uh, uh, will will build into a new hospital on the grounds. Um, but but it still stands the test of time and still represents a wonderful place to, um, to, to have been cared for. We're actually stood at the side of the retreat um, in between the autism and ADHD service and the outpatient service, which is our outpatient therapeutic um, therapy uh, counselling services. And it's a lovely setting because even though we're not actually in the retreat grounds yet, we've probably got the best view of the Minster, York Minster here, because where the retreat is actually on the highest point in York, and uh, any development that actually has to happen in, in the future, we need to respect that, uh, that view. So the, 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 the Minster and the historic uh, base of York and the most historic base of psychiatric care actually are facing each other, and that's beautiful. As we go past, you can see the, the large buildings on the left that are behind the main house. But the main and the most impressive view of the retreat is the front, uh, which is, still is the original edifice of, 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 of the retreat. And it still, can be still seen in many, many pictures uh, throughout the various archives of psychiatry. I think one of the big things is, is the scale. As you walk around this site, it is, it is huge, isn't it? Well, well don't, don't forget, the, this used to be a significant major hospital. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, it actually had its own uh, surgical unit, dentistry unit, occupational therapy, physiotherapy. And in fact, in the distance there, that part of the building there was the nurses' home. So we were teachers of nurses as well. Further on, you can see something called Fairfax House, which also belonged to the retreat. And beyond that is Bellevue Terrace. And we had property down there. And at the end of Bellevue Terrace, there's a cottage, which is also part of the retreat. In Bellevue Terrace and, the, and another nurse's home, they actually had a swimming pool as well. So, the, and, and one of the other thing is, we also had um, property in Scarborough, which was all part of the retreat. So you can see, at some point in time, it was a massive concern. Now we've come up to the main building. Talk me through the the looks of this. It's very, it is very grand, isn't it? It's lovely. It is grand. I mean, we're actually standing in what used to be the Porter's Lodge. So this was an arched and uh, it's a secured entrance. And as you go through the drive, you can see the original edifice of the retreat. In fact, it's quite simple in design, almost Georgian. And, yeah, and, and the windows and the door, uh, uh, we try, try to retain the original features. So, uh, at the, and you can see on either side are the more modern extensions. But the central part of uh, the retreat is still as it was those many years ago. So when with that, the, the, the passage I read out some before, which is about this Herculean, man being presented in chains to the house that would be in the door he would have actually walked through that white large door with the pillars either side he would have that he would have come through there and, and this would have almost been his, his place of sanctuary the retreat as it yeah. that's right sanctuary is the great word and uh, the retreat was uh, was 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 named because of its association with with peace with an oasis of calm and that's what it has been for many people So my name is Dr. Katja Oswald and I'm a clinical psychologist. 
I am the service lead for the autism and ADHD service here at the retreat in York. So tell me a bit about how you came to be working here and how long you've been here for. Um, I've been here now for just over three years. Um, I've I kind of previously worked in the area of autism, mainly with children, actually, and young people. And so when I came here, this was my first kind of working in a service that was um, exclusively for adults that uh, work either kind of trying to find out whether they're autistic or have ADHD or were seeking support, uh, therapeutic support for autism and ADHD. Um, and, and recently we're now also offering the service for children and young people. It's interesting because you're right in saying that it's probably one of the one of the only places where there is that dedicated support for adults with um, autism and ADHD. Is that right? Yeah, there are there are across the UK several services that um, particularly serve adults. Uh, but you're right. Historically, there there have always been more services for children, um, and uh, sometimes people kind of remark that it's almost like. Um, the healthcare system sort of assumes that you outgrow being autistic when you're when you're sort of 18, um, and that maybe when you um, um, maybe want support specifically that's tailored to adults, that that in the past has been harder to find. I think more and more services kind of um, serve adults. So the the larger scale of this is that you're part of the it's part of a collective group of the retreat, and you're basing these wonderful grounds. Tell me a little bit about what this place does for people who have these sort of conditions. Yeah, so I, I have to say it's, um, of all the places I've worked, my favourite place to work. Um, one of the reasons is that um, we have access to the outside. So sometimes um, people come to our service and they find it extremely hard to tolerate actually being in a room maybe sat, sat opposite somebody to, you know, have a conversation. And that can feel really overwhelming if you're struggling with social communication. Um, so it, is, it feels a really great privilege to be able to say, OK, let's go out and walk and talk. Um, so I, I frequently kind of go for a long loop around our lovely big uh, garden. Um, and it, it can be much easier to have a conversation if you're next to each other rather than kind of facing each other. Um, and people find often being outside and, and not in a confined space has, has a soothing effect. Um, we're lucky to have lots of squirrels and bunnies, so there's often something to also maybe just focus on something else. Um, and I, I, I often use mindfulness in, in kind of my practice, and it's really nice to be able to just try it out there and then by being mindful of maybe what we can see around us or the sounds we can hear or feel the different surfaces we walk on. So it, it, it just feels wonderful to, to not just talk about ways that we can help ourselves, but just try them out there and then outside. One one thing about this place, it doesn't feel clinical at all. It feels like, I mean, there's a fireplace over there in yeah. this room that we're in. We feel like we're actually, you know, in someone's house a little bit, do you think? It has a, it has a definitely a cosy feel. Um, I, I think that it is really relevant um, that we ca we have the environment we have. So we, we are able to have a building that's a little bit... Um, hopefully quieter. Um, we've decorated it in a way that makes it a little bit less um, visually stimulating. So we try to have a, 
a low arousal kind of setting. And often that's really hard to do if you're, you know, in a general medic, uh, sort of um, general health um, GP practice, maybe, or you're in a sort of medical center in a community where it's busy and noisy and, I don't know, next door the vaccinations for the under fives are happening. So it's much harder to create an environment that's sensitive to to people who maybe have auditory or visual sensitivities and that can find noisy environments really overwhelming. Um, I don't think we always get it right because it's actually quite hard to, to keep a, a place quiet and, and um, kind of low stimulation, but because we're we're able to have a building that's just for us. We are able to to implement some of the the ideas we have. And there's been a lot of there's been a lot of changes. I mean, in this, these three years that you've been here, there's been changes to the the services that you've been able to to offer. I mean, is this is um, tell me a little bit about the other types of offerings that have been here and that are here now as well. Okay, yeah, so so I'm embedded in the autism and ADHD service, uh, both on the adult side and, and the children's service. So those are you know close to my heart, so yeah. I will tend to always speak about those. But we're actually now in the um, Chuk building, and that is our psychotherapy outpatient service. So this is where any adults um, in the community can seek um, psychotherapeutic input. And we have a whole range of, of therapists Um so we have uh, clinical psychologists, for example, that um, use various sort of therapeutic modalities. But we also have psychodynamic therapists who, again, take a different therapeutic approach. We have some CBT therapists. So I think it's quite unique to have um, a center where there are the range. S- such yeah. a range of different, you know, therapy comes in so many different flavors because we know different approaches suit different people. Um, and it's it's quite a um a unique uh, environment to also as a as a practitioner have all these colleagues that have always a slightly you know different skill mix and that that makes it quite a rich uh, offer for for clients but also for us as, yeah, as, as, say, as clinicians I, yeah to i work guess that in. helps you grow as well yeah it's, it's interesting you say that about the range of the the um, therapists that you have here because mm-hmm. i had a really interesting stat the other day mm-hmm. where some, they were saying that it can take up to 10 years for someone to find the right therapist so that i'm guessing that's something where you're like we're trying to yeah. to break down those barriers that's quite that's a stat that's quite hard to hear actually because you know 10 years in in a person's lifetime that that is very long mm-hmm. Um, We know research shows that actually there is no good research to to show that there is one therapeutic modality that's better than any others. The the research keeps kind of showing that the most crucial thing is the relationship you have with your therapist. Um, And so that trumps actually all the other modalities. And yeah, so I, I, I think that it makes sense that finding the right um, therapists can can take some time um i'm still shocked by it sort no. of on average being 10 years yeah yeah it was a really interesting st- i literally heard it the other day but mm. um so the retreats in the process of also uh, setting up a, a trauma hub so um having a, a range of um clinicians that particularly serve people that have um more complex trauma history um and the retreat retreats also developing an outpatient 
eating um, disorders service. So people who currently don't need hospital treatment for a, an eating disorder, but are living in the community and need support for difficulties around eating. Um, it sounds like you're adapting and expanding. Is there a reason for that? Is there, some, is, there, is there something that's saying we need to be doing more for this? Yeah, I, I, I think you're probably aware that overall NHS, and particularly NHS England, has kind of um, um, been affected a lot by, by, by funding cuts. And so um, one strategy has been to reduce more and more hospital-based treatment. So there's a strong push in mental health to have community-based treatments. And so the retreat has had to adapt to that as well. You know, historically, we started out as an inpatient setting where people would come to the retreat to recover mm. um, and being in a, be in a therapeutic environment 24-7. Um, these kind of approaches were very beneficial and effective but it's, it's financial pressures that have kind of forced not only the retreat, but also other uh, providers to, to reduce that provision. Um, and I guess as clinicians, we've, we've always then thought, well, people's needs aren't going away. How can we adapt? How can we uh, accommodate supporting people who now are living in the community? And don't have that wraparound care. It's really interesting because it's like that. It's like that um, vicious cycle, isn't it? That you know you're taking that away so that the problem doesn't go away, no. does it? Um, you were saying before we started talking that you were particularly touched in series one when we spoke to Sarah, who shared um, her her story about her anxiety through um, her condition because she had she had ADHD um, as well, and you said that particularly touched you, didn't you? Yeah, I, I really loved listening to that uh, episode of of your podcast, and I, I thought Sarah was amazing in how she how she described her struggles with OCD and and, and also how in in the conversation she shared so many useful strategies and, and, and I think a lot of people would have probably found that really helpful for their personal experience. Um, and then she obviously also spoke about quite late in life being diagnosed uh, to be autistic. Mm. Um, and it, it reminded me how the, the thing I'm currently most excited about at the retreat is that we're really trying to... Um, listen to people with the lived experience of autism. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're speaking to Roseanne today as well, who's not just here today, but she's our expert by experience. So she's part of the retreat and she's helping us, um, you know, shape our services to actually be what people want um, rather than us clinicians kind of saying, we think this is what you need and therefore this is what we're going to offer um, and, and do you think that because the, the, the retreat is, is that third step away from the NHS, that you, you have that flexibility to have roles like that here? Um, I, I, I wonder whether that does give us more mm. flexibility. I know, however, that obviously our colleagues in the NHS are having the same uh, attempts as well. Um, so this idea of involving, um, often it's called service user, Users, that that's something that's not just unique to us. I know our colleagues in the NHS do that as well. But maybe we have a little bit more flexibility to be creative.
I think when I look back when I was quite young, I recognised certain things, so I kind of had to follow rules and I often struggled um, when things weren't quite planned out properly, but I kind of never really thought anything of that. Uh, when I was about 14, 15, I started to realise that some of the thoughts that I was having, some of the things that I was doing weren't quite like other people. I don't like the word normal, but they weren't particularly normal. Um, and I kind of got went to the GP about that when I was about 16 um, and was diagnosed with OCD. And then that also, I kind of later developed an eating disorder um, for which I was hospitalised. Um, and so I received treatment in a different hospital um, and I one of my real goals was to get to university in York. Um, and so I got my place and I was, you know, um, just I'd come out of hospital a few months before and I really, really wanted this to work. So um, I kind of pushed, I looked, found the retreat website actually, and I pushed to um, get an assessment here. And so I, I came here when I was still an inpatient for an assessment and I kind of started, you know, opening up a little bit about how my eating disorder affected me. And one of the things that I said was that um, sometimes I struggle with the sensory aspect of food. And the kind of psychologist who was, who was speaking to me um, mentioned, have you ever heard of autism and it had it was something that I was quite aware of a few years ago I'd thought you know maybe uh, I do have some of these traits maybe I am on the autistic spectrum and um, but when I mentioned that to people before they they just kind of I sometimes I don't seem what people would view as autistic so um you know they just thought oh no you you don't have that um but I really felt listened to and understood when when the psychologist mentioned about autism she kind of helped me to say you know you can you can come and have an assessment at the retreat um so she referred me for an assessment I I did get assessed and I did get a diagnosis of autism and so when I did move to university um in York uh, and I came for therapy at the retreat primarily for my eating disorder the therapist um, called Dan. He really helped me because he understood both autism and um, eating disorders. And so for me, just seeing me, it really felt like he saw me as a person and not as a diagnosis. So, you know, he really looked into what it was for me that I was struggling with, not what typically someone with an eating disorder would struggle with and that really helped me to start understanding myself and and um, recognizing what my traits from autism were and what were more kind of eating disorder um, behaviors sure. and I bet for sort of your your well-being and your mental health it was probably quite a bad thing in previously that you hadn't been able to get those diagnoses any earlier obviously the, the doctors were able to see your your eating disorder but weren't able to patch them together mm. so how how was that for you when you were younger and and you know it, it probably didn't affect your mental health in any, any good way when when that was happening yeah I think I mean, you know, I can't go back and kind of um, see how it would turn out if I had a diagnosis earlier, but I genuinely feel like if I'd have had a diagnosis and if I'd have... It's not so much the diagnosis that helped me, it was the understanding from other people and the help um, to understand myself that was, you know, vital for me. Um, but if I'd have had that previously, I don't feel like 
I might not have developed an eating disorder because actually, in a way, it was a way of coping with all of these things that I just didn't understand. So I didn't understand what I was feeling. I, I didn't understand, um, you know, from being really young, I remember um, I, I couldn't understand the feeling of excitement. So actually, I'd get really excited about something and it would make me feel quite ill. Um, and then I would work myself up because I'm feeling ill, but I'm supposed to be excited. And actually understanding for me that feeling excited and feeling um, anxious for me feels the same. And it felt like I didn't have that link between how my body was feeling and, and what was going on around me. So actually me being able to say, oh, well, this is a, um, you know, a situation where it's quite good, I'm enjoying it, I want to do it, and I'm having this, like, feeling that feels like anxiety. Actually, it's not. I'm excited. And that really helped me. That really helped me to kind of, you know, um, cope with things. You know, I've had um, friends kind of come to me before. I had one friend say to me the other day, actually, um, you know, because I'm quite open about my eating disorder story as well. You know, I'm I'm not ashamed to say that I had an eating disorder. I'm happy talking about it. And um, she said to me, you know, actually, I can see that I'm quite vulnerable to develop an eating disorder but actually from you sharing your story I'm able to find that line um and you know because she she is she's quite um likes to to do sport and she said you've allowed me to realize where my line is and you know to to help me to stay healthy and just hearing things like that you know it makes things worth it it's not easy to share your story by any means and um I mean, I feel like I've come a long way in to be able to open up. So to start with, when I was first diagnosed with anxiety and OCD, um, I actually remember I, I was at school and I lied to my friends about where I was going. I said, my mum needs me home, um, but I was actually going to therapy. And I was so ashamed of needing support because I felt like, you know, I should be the strong one. I should be able to kind of go through life without getting support by, from other people. Um, and I just, I couldn't tell them. And I, I felt so ashamed of the fact that I was struggling and I was, you know, having all these thoughts. And, and then when I developed my eating disorder, I felt the same. I was thinking, well, wh why should I be restricting my intake? Why should I um, be exercising? exercising compulsively why am I lying to my friends because I can't face going out with a meal with them and it was all this guilt and shame that I was building up that actually fueled my eating disorder because the way I describe it it's like if you um have little islands of values so for example I value my family my friends um I love playing squash I value being a kind and caring person one by one, the eating disorder takes those things away from you. So I was isolating myself from my friends, so that kind of island felt like it was falling down. Um, I was actually lashing out at my family. I was hitting doors, kicking, you know, kicking things because I was so frustrated. So that relationship was deteriorating. Even simple things like like playing clarinet, which I love to do, it became a way of calorie counting and trying to reduce um, how many calories I was kind of consuming and and you know I, 
it takes all of those values away from you and the only thing left is the eating disorder so it's your you see it as your only way of coping and it makes it so difficult to then build those islands back up because because you don't know what you're going to be if you let if you let that eating disorder go because you feel it's the only thing left and that's how i felt um me at first it wasn't speaking about it i actually wrote a song and wrote some poetry and I showed that to my teacher and that's how I used to another thing about you know the retreat I used to bring those songs and those letters and poetry in and show my therapist because I couldn't speak to him to start with face like I I couldn't get the words out I'd be sat there and thinking I want to say this I want to say this but playing him that song it was already there written in a way that I felt comfortable doing and actually doing that then led me to be able to talk more and to open up to people and I've never found anyone kind of say um, anything particularly negative about the fact that you know I am receiving help for, for things so yeah I think it opened my eyes a little bit to the fact that it wasn't selfish and it wasn't um, something I should be ashamed of. So we're now walking back to the back of the house and it's a, it's a, it's a lot uh, quieter around here, isn't it? You lose the, the, the sounds from the roads and it becomes a lot more peaceful, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, and we're actually uh, walking down the side of the retreat uh, towards the back uh, where the grounds begin to open up. And on our, on our right-hand side, again, it's a, a building that is not used. It used to be a hostel uh, and, and a place where people used to go that needed rehabilitation and care, but maybe not as intensive as you would do in a, in a, in a hospitalised, supervised fashion. On our left are a whole range of cottages, um, and they, over the years, have been used for different, different functions, but originally was, was, again, houses for some of the staff. Uh, and, and at the back of there is a, a field that is, is now just a grazing field, but it used to be used as, as farmland and, and, and therefore a little bit of a farmstead for, for patients to actually work in and use and grow their own vegetables and fruit. It is interesting what you said there. None, none of this, none of these sort of, you've got these lovely brick stone houses with the Georgian-esque windows and the, the bay windows down there. That It's very much like this is a place of relaxation. There's a squirrel walking yeah, there. Sure, so, yeah. you know, and, and, you know and, and I'm guessing that, you know, this, none of that is, is by accident, is it? No, no. And, and, and we hope to retain all these features in our developments, in our development plans. So one of the things that is very precious to us um, as Quakers is to make, make accessible the heritage and the history and the beauty of these grounds. In fact, it's, it's been noted that these are one of the few purposefully designed therapeutic grounds uh, in, 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 in the UK. And if you look now... You can see on the left-hand side there's a, a beautiful shelter there for, for people to, to actually be at peace with themselves. On the right-hand side there's actually a bowling green and there's tennis courts uh, and, 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 and there's a f wonderful cricket pitch just behind us which, be, which all have been used in the past by our residents, our patients, service users, staff. Uh, and the staff of a patient cricket game is often a useful sort of an entertaining event. It had, had been in the past anyway. 
And what's really nice is where we've come down now, we're about 250 metres away from the main house and you can't see the house at all, can you? No, you can't see the house because of the large chestnut trees and the large fir trees there. Uh, and uh, it, 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 all you can hear now is the birds. And it's, uh, it's, it's a, it, you, you, you yourself, Michael, I think, will, are getting a sense of calm now. As we're 100%. Actually, as, as actually walking down. And it, it, sometimes when, I'm work, when we're working um, at the retreat on the board meetings, it can last a whole day. It's great just to get out and have a walk down this very historic path because at the end of this path is actually the Quaker burial ground, where many of the famous Quakers that are renowned for their contribution to, to service and community are buried. And, 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 and it will have a particular sort of effect on you when you see it, because it is, a, it, it is quite a, a spiritual uh, area that we will retain and maintain access to. We're now at the, the bottom part of the, the grounds and looking back you can see the hospital in the distance and around us are uh, ancient and listed trees and a beautiful open space that used to be the cricket, cricket ground. But in the corner, again slightly sort of uh, covered and protected by large trees, is the Quaker burial ground. And what you'll see as we're walking in here is that every burial stone is exactly the same. The same height, the same shape. And that's how we as Quakers want it. It's about equality. It's about not necessarily being revered or, or looked upon in any sort of status or ego sense of anybody being better than they are, but actually being the same and equal both in life and in death. And you're actually standing on the Roundtree family graves at the moment. And as most people will know, Roundtrees were founders of the Roundtrees Chocolate Factory in York. And they established many community um, sort of uh, uh, living accommodations in a place called New Earswick, housing for, for, for uh, workers, and were wonderful sort of uh, advocates of, of workers' rights. And they really did look after the people who worked at Roundtrees. And, and you still today you hear people of York talking about Roundtrees with great affection. But interestingly enough, Roundtrees might not have occurred if it wasn't for the Tuke family. Because Mary Tuke, which was um, uh, William Tuke's mother, had, had a grocery and, and um, uh, um, cocoa sort of business. And it was her that sold it to Joseph Roundtrees, of which then began to be the manufacturer of chocolate. So, in a way, the Tukes were also founders of the chocolate city, <laughs> uh, as, as, as it's affectionately known today. And, and let's head over to the Tuke family, to the graves over here. Because... Um, as you say, they all are exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. And so here we found Samuel Tuke's grave, who was the grandson of, of William Tuke. Yeah, and the author of the book that described the retreat. And uh, he carried on his, uh, his, his uh, grandfather's work, as did um, uh, the, the other Tuke family, the rest of the Tuke family. Um, some of them became um, advocates of, of uh, ther therapeutic care. One was actually trained as a doctor when they eventually allowed um, Quakers into you know, university schools for, for medical training. Um, and uh, it's just amazing how the Tuke family was such uh, advocates of, of, of an effective way of 
just being and and living and standing here is quite sobering really to 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 see so many sort of um, service givers contributors to effective living for yourself how how do you see your journey progressing you're obviously still on a journey and this is part of it where do you see yourself going you know maybe with the retreats help or or not I mean so at the moment um I also work in the student support at the university um and I just find that being able to be that listening ear to someone is really really helps them but also um it's quite rewarding you know from my point of view um and just for me the way that I'm able to see it is I've been through quite a difficult journey um but actually I now feel I I don't feel like particularly the thoughts still sometimes come back but it's the way that I view it so it doesn't bother me anymore I'm able to think well that's an eating disorder so I don't want to listen um and so for me having that kind of experience and being in a good place myself and I genuinely am the happiest that I've ever felt um I feel like having you know that past and that journey just there's a reason for it and I feel like it now allows me to to help other people and that's how I see it progressing you know that's what I'd like to do and take something quite negative and difficult for me and for my family um, and friends and everyone who knows me um, and make something positive out of it and you know that's what I want to do. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's episode, you can get the proper advice you need. We aren't experts, but the Samaritans provide free, confidential support for people experiencing feelings of distress or despair. You can phone them 24 hours a day on 116-123 or visiting thesamaritans.org.uk. The Diana Award also provides a crisis messenger service which gives young people 24-hour crisis support across the UK. If you are a young person in crisis, you can text DA for free to 85258. That's DA to 85258.